0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And
1: I'm Caroline. And it is Oscar week on the podcast. That's, that's right. Last time we talked about sort of the history and evolution of women in the director's chair. And that was fascinating. We learned so much incredible history that I, frankly, had no idea about. But we also wanted to focus today's episode on those trailblazing, groundbreaking African-American directors who were out there, both who laid the groundwork back 100 100 years ago, but also the women who are working so hard in the industry today. Yeah, because uh, there was one issue with Monday's episode that came out was that, Yeah, we
0: were talking about history, but we were also covering three white women. And while there are barriers unique to females in particular who want to direct, there are even more barriers in place for women of color who want to direct. And... Before we get into the rather depressing statistics, to be honest, I just want to establish the fact that, yes, they are out there. They are making their films despite these barriers. And there are names that you should know. And uh, I tweeted a friend of mine, Lauren Shacker, who is in L.A., who is a totally badass feminist making films. And I asked her for suggestions of women of color directors we should give shout-outs to. And the response from Her Twitter followers and other women in Hollywood making films was overwhelming. And these aren't exclusively African-American women in the director's seat, which we're going to focus on in this episode. But
1: just to tee things off, we wanted to share some of the names that we got from Twitter. Yeah, we heard about women like Nima Barnett, Millicent Shelton, Janice Bravo, Debbie Allen, Mina Shum, Alice Wu, Julie Dash, who we'll talk about more in this episode. Yeah, I got to tell you, Caroline, I had a real uh, celebrity
0: feeling moment on Twitter when Julie Dash retweeted our tweet. I was like, oh my God, we we connected to Julie (laughs) Dash. And if you don't know who Julie Dash is, you'll understand in a few minutes why that was such
1: a big moment. And that wasn't all. There were even more names. Yeah, like Tanya Wright, Ama Asante, who we're about to mention, Issa Rae, Darnell Martin, Sookian Lee, and Marta Cunningham, just to mention a few. Yeah, and we're going to
0: gather all of these up into a gallery on Stuff I'm Never Told you. com with links to IMDb pages and films so that if you didn't catch all of those names, don't worry, you will be able to find them on our website. So... Here's where we get to the not-so-fun facts. That, yes, these women absolutely exist. They're doing incredible work. But in our episode on Monday, we highlighted how... There are, in Hollywood, about 15.24 male directors to every female director.
1: Right, we pointed out that it was 15 men and a set of shins. Yes, 0.24
0: shins. But then if you narrow it down to female directors of
1: color, the number gets even tinier. And speaking to The Root, director Ama Asante, and she she directed the movie Belle, which I went and saw when it came out in theaters. She pointed out that black women make up just 1% of directors overall. 1%. And consider this, too. In the
0: 90s, only 28 films were directed by black women. 28 feature films, I should say. Only three of those were released nationally. And only one of those had a major Hollywood release. So when we're talking about barriers in terms of women filmmaking, this is a group that honestly probably faces the
1: most challenges in terms of getting a film made, especially in Hollywood. Yeah, but this doesn't mean that there aren't some amazing women out there, obviously, as we've been trying to establish. You've got women like Maya Angelou, who directed Down in the Delta. She had actually, as we'll talk about earlier, had wanted to direct a previous screenplay that she'd written, but she didn't get the opportunity. You've got Gina Prince-Bythewood, who directed Love and Basketball, which was produced by Spike Lee, and Casey Lemons, who directed Eve's Bayou, which is definitely going into my Netflix queue. And then we have Cheryl Dunye, who directed the film Watermelon Woman, and Danya is actually the first openly gay black female director. And as we'll talk about in more detail in just a minute, the modern
0: history of black women directing films is rather recent. But what a lot of people might not know is that even in those early days of film, there were black female trailblazers like the women we were talking about in Monday's
1: episode, like the Alice Mm
0: Ghiblachés.
1: Yeah, and their goal was not only to direct movies, be involved in the film industry, but also to really put forth an effort to present a more accurate portrayal of the lives of African Americans, that they weren't one-dimensional characters who were all servants or maids, that they had just as rich an inner life as any other character on screen. And so a lot of this information is coming from media messages, what film. TV and popular music teach us about race. Um, and we also cannot emphasize enough
0: how great of a resource Columbia University's Women Film Pioneers Project is. It's online and all of the women we're going to talk about are also profiled Over there. And the first one we want to talk about is Tressie Souders, who in 1922, the black press named her the first black woman director with the film A Woman's Error, Mm -hmm. which was distributed by the Afro-American Film Exhibitors
1: Company based in Kansas City, Missouri. And she also... Wrote the screenplay. And what's interesting is that profile points out that in the 1921 city City directory for Kansas City, Missouri, and if you do any sort of family or history research, you realize how important those city directories are to look back at. But they listed her as a maid. And so I think it's so interesting also to look at the career path that these women take and still today that these women take to get behind the camera. But then that leads us to Eloise King, Patrick Gist. She was an independent businesswoman who also produced films with her husband. So there's that same husband-wife team connection that we also talked about in the first episode. But her films had a super strong moral bent for the purpose of social uplift. For instance, her crime drama, Verdict Not Guilty, is offered. Often screened by the NAACP and the interestingly titled Hellbound Train preached temperance for her audience. Well, and thinking about
0: verdict not guilty in today's context with all of the national conversations going on regarding. Race Relations, that was a film that she was making in the silent era Mm -hmm. about the criminal justice system and race. So films that are still relevant today and just focused more on writing and editing than actual directing But she's still a really important figure who is also acknowledged by the Library of Congress.
1: Yeah, they're actually putting in an effort, and I don't know how far along they are in these efforts. I'd love to hear an update if anybody has one. But they have been working to edit and restore her films, which basically were in shreds. I mean, you know, we've we talked about the the films of the women in our first episode, that they were also damaged and super hard to find uh, these early films and that some of them were founded in a state sale in a trunk. And so you can just imagine what film from this era is like if it's not cared for. Well, and
0: apparently Verdict Not Guilty was screened so often that that's one of the reasons why it's in tatters, because it was just used (laughs) so, so many times. But then we also have Maria P. Williams, who was a social activist. Not surprising. I mean, it seems like all of these women have um, activism in their blood. And she wrote the pamphlet, My Work and Public Sentiment, in 1916. So she was already getting her voice out there and she and her husband again that that marriage tie right there they operated a motion picture theater and were instrumental with the western film producing company and booking exchange and so that kind of got her into this burgeoning industry
1: Yeah, and in 1923, she produced, distributed, and acted in her own film, The Flames of Wrath. And so while she isn't explicitly a lady director, she's still an incredibly important figure. And it is important to point out also that the term producer was sort of used ambiguously back in those days. So basically, I think it's fine to count her as a trailblazing filmmaker. Absolutely.
0: I mean, at the time, the Norfolk Journal and Guide hailed her as the first, quote, colored woman filmmaker producer in the United States, which clearly was a, an exciting moment. So we wanted to, we thought it was important to establish that, yes, there is that early history right there. Mm -hmm. Black women have been working in filmmaking since the beginning of that technology. But here's the thing, the, the big difference that jumped out to me in us talking about those early white female directors and this group of black directors You still have, even with white female directors, there is definitely a gap in Hollywood, particularly post-World War II. But when it comes to black female directors, there's nothing in Hollywood. You have no Dorothy Arzner or Ida Lupino equivalent in those earlier days of Hollywood because it's not until the late 1980s that black women even get behind the camera in mainstream Hollywood.
1: Right. Yeah, there is there is a line between the uh, independent films and the documentaries that women of color are putting out and actually getting to be behind the camera in Hollywood, like you said. And so it's interesting to look at the route that women take to becoming successful directors. And that's
0: something that Melvin Donaldson writes about in his book Black Directors in Hollywood, specifically about how black women filmmakers have consistently either by choice or by, you know, financial necessity had to go the independent route and often gravitated toward documentary filmmaking. For that reason. And I mean there was also a certain appeal too, particularly when it comes to documentary filmmaking because they quote provide an opportunity for inscribing the untold accounts of black public and private figures in the historical record. Going back again to those early women we talked about who weren't just making films for the sake of making films, but making films that could accurately
1: portray black life and black community. Yeah, and you get Jessie Maple in the early 80s who was driven by this need and desire to present more positive images of the African-American community. And so in 1981, she becomes the first black female director of an independent feature-length film called Will, And it focuses around a girl's basketball coach who has a heroin problem, but who is also mentoring a 12 year old boy. And it was shot on just a $12,000 budget. And what's so interesting when you talk about the routes that people take to to get where they're going, she actually didn't start her career in film until after she worked as a bacteriologist. And it was that desire to want to inject positive images of black women and black men into the media that that really drove her but she was also the first black woman to join the filmmakers union which is interesting
0: and she was highly influential in black cinema starting 20 west home of black cinema in her basement in harlem in the 1980s that showcased the newest in black film and she would brag that they showed spike lee films before anyone else showed spike lee films but looking outside of the independent route and looking to Hollywood, there's such a dearth of black female directors because of a lot of institutional factors that come up. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, talented black female directors exist, but they're likelier to, quote, sidestep the frustrating studio system and complete low budget projects. Remember, people, it always goes back to the money, but also... Mm-hmm. That's usually the the go-to factor in terms of white female directors not getting these larger Hollywood-scale projects. But there's an added wrinkle when it comes to black female filmmakers that it's the money, but also the content, too, of people being like, well, I don't know if these stories need to be told
1: about these black communities. Yeah, whether they need to be told or whether they'll translate to a larger audience, a national audience that is white or an international audience that might not catch everything if it's lost in translation. So, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that those are a lot of the producers and studio systems concerns. Yeah, that was my impression of the studio. Right.
0: Talking like this. <laughs> very stiff.
1: But then, as Melvin Donaldson writes
0: about, again, in Black Directors in Hollywood, in the 90s, and the, the very late 80s, but really in the 90s, some black women directors start getting a few more opportunities to work. And, I mean, this is, this is again in contrast to white women directors who, again, lots of barriers, but still had more, more access. And he attributes it to a few factors. Starting in the 1980s, he mentions how black male directors kind of paved the way just in the sense of telling the stories of people of color and establishing that, hey, this is a valid and important and also successful financially form of entertainment.
1: Right. And you also have the rise in black female authors being published in the mid 70s onward and then bringing those literary characters alive on screen. For example, we had Lorraine Hansberry and A Raisin in the Sun, Terry McMillan and Waiting to Exhale, Alice Walker and The Color Purple, of course, and more recently, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie and Americana. Yeah, which I can't already can't wait to see. And
0: in addition to the importance of greater visibility of black women in front of the screen, both the big screen and the small screen, it's all about this process of normalizing. It's just wild to me that we're talking about this in the context of only the 1990s, not the 1890s the 1990s. So why don't we talk about some more contemporary
1: trailblazers and women who were breaking through those barriers to make their films. Yeah, well, you know, mentioning Maya Angelou again, she is the first black woman to have a feature film screenplay produced with 1972's Georgia, Georgia, and she had wanted to direct it, but didn't, and she ended up being unhappy with the final product, and she had to wait to sit in the director's chair until 1998's Down in the Delta, and she has a great quote about, hey, books are my world, movies are your world. If I'm doing something that seems odd or wrong, please Please pull me aside and we'll go for a walk together. And you can tell me that way. Yeah, I had fun
0: Google imaging uh, images of Maya Angelou in the director's chair. Um, and it's as, uh, it's exactly what you think it looks like. It's Maya Angelou in a director's chair. She looks like she's having a good time. I didn't realize, though, that she was a director. And also, I mean, you know, the first black woman to have a feature film screenplay produced.
1: Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? Well, that's why we're here, Kristen. That's why we're talking about this today. Exactly. <laughs> Hopefully, spreading some knowledge. Um, then there's the amazing Yuzan Palsy. She's the first black woman to direct a major Hollywood studio feature film, the movie A Dry White Season in 1980. It's about apartheid, and it's starring the A-listers Donald Sutherland, Marlon Brando, and Susan Sarandon. Brando actually came out of retirement to work in this film, and he ended up getting his final Oscar nomination for his role in her film.
0: And Palsy is the only woman to ever direct Marlon Brando, which is pretty interesting. And other moment of celebrity uh, Twitter excitement, Uh she also weighed in on the tweet about uh women of color Did directors really? yes yes so i mean that right there the fact that that she and julie dash were hopping on board this conversation shows just how much activism there still is mm-hmm. around this specific issue um and talking again we about her route into filmmaking it started pretty early uh, she was born uh on the island of martinique and made her first film in france at
1: 17. Hmm. Yeah, and in 1983, her first feature film, Sugarcane Alley, was presented at the Venice Film Festival, and she became the first black artist to win a Caesar and a Silver Lion Award at Venice. And when it comes
0: to the importance of a dry white season, Not only was it groundbreaking in the sense of who was making it, but also its content. It helped bring attention to apartheid and genocide happening in South Africa. So, I mean, clearly that just goes to show the importance of getting these new and diverse perspectives because they're the
1: storytellers. Yeah. Well, now let's talk about Julie Dash, who we've mentioned at the top of the podcast. And people are probably like, "Okay, you've mentioned Julie Dash like five times. What is the deal? (laughs) Why are you so obsessed with
0: Julie Dash? Well, Julie Dash, listener friends, was an independent filmmaker... Who ended up making the very first general theatrical release directed by a black woman? How about that for a title?
1: Yeah, that's 1991's Daughters of the Dust, which explored the complexities of a black family with a black female protagonist. And it was shot for $800,000 on St. Helena Island off the coast of South Carolina. And it, it, I, uh, this is another film that I'm adding to my list of things that I have to go see because it sounds just incredibly fascinating the way that it presents this multi-generational look at this African-American family. And the technique that it uses to tell the story is so interesting, focusing on the voice of an unborn child to sort of help bridge those generations and look into the past at where the families come from, but also look into the future and where they're going. Yeah, and in
0: Monday's episode on the those pioneering Hollywood directors, we also mentioned at the the top of that episode the importance of Sundance, mm-hmm. the Sundance Film Festival, for showcasing Um, filmmakers of color and female filmmakers. And that was where Daughters of the Dust first caught people's attention. And in terms of film critique and analysis, Donaldson writes that Dash reveals what no other Hollywood filmmaker had done in the past, namely that black women possess physical and spiritual beauty as well as psychological diversity.
1: Yeah. And it's those representations that uh, Dash is talking about in Daughters of the Dust when she has this quote about how it affects men, male, male viewers in the audience. And she says, I think that for a lot of white males and black males, too, they get to go there and assume the personality of the characters on screen. A lot of people couldn't do that for Daughters of the Dust. I mean, I've seen men run out of the theater, and I think that's so funny. She's, she's presenting an incredibly important voice, an incredibly important perspective, but talking about how some members of my audience just can't handle it. Well, and that
0: goes to, to uh, considering why it is important to talk about female directors and that influence because what is on screen is reflected on what's behind screen and mm-hmm. we talk to all the time about the importance of like representation and visibility and a lot of times yes if if films are being exclusively made by white men a lot of the times Mm -hmm. then a lot of those times those are the stories that end up being told and not that there's anything wrong with those stories but hey you know we like we like to see ourselves all of ourselves reflected on
1: screen yeah but Dash points out to IndieWeek.com that this film and it's incredibly important perspective ultimately proved a little bit limiting she says that Daughters of the Dust which was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry in 2004 by by the way, gave her a reputation as an auteur who specializes in the cinema of ideas, not words, making the chances of her doing a sophomore feature close to nil. So basically, here she's presenting this incredibly important film with these perspectives that are really not represented anywhere else, and people were like, oh, are you just gonna make movies like that? This is so artsy. Yeah, oh,
0: okay, well, never mind. And she hasn't made another theatrical release since. Um, her made-for-TV film, The Rose as a park story did earn her a nomination from the directors guild for outstanding directorial achievement in movies for television which yet again was a first for a black woman and she has been so vocal about the need for more black female directors. Obviously, she's active on Twitter as well. Um So even though she hasn't yet had that sophomore film after Daughters of the Dust, she has certainly been active.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, speaking of first, that leads us to Darnell Martin, who was the first black woman to write and direct for a major studio. And in 1994, her critically acclaimed, I like it like that, came out from Columbia Pictures and she really didn't like the fact that during the promotion of the film people were paying so much attention to the fact that she was not only a woman but a woman of color that that seemed to be like the huge selling point almost in the marketing for it and it's interesting that she, you know she also directed the film Cadillac Records a couple years ago that had Adrian Brody and Beyoncé in it um but you know her gender and ethnicity really didn't receive Nearly the same attention that they did when her 1994 film came out and perhaps that's a good sign. Yeah. Not that, not that attention shouldn't be called to it, of course, but like, hey, I'm a director. She doesn't have to preface it by saying, I am a woman of color director. Yeah, I mean, this is something that
0: comes up a lot on stuff I've never told you, especially when we're talking about women in traditionally male dominated industries where it's like, Just let me be a doctor. Just Mm -hmm. let me be a director. Just let me be a construction worker. Right. It doesn't always have to be qualified. And that is that will be probably a sign of progress when this episode is just about directors. Right. Exactly. But then that brings us to Angela Robinson, who is the highest grossing black female director for not the most artistic Or critically acclaimed film. It was Herbie Fully Loaded, which did gross $144 million worldwide on a $50 million budget. So, and not bad. And even though, as people point out, yeah, Herbie, not the most impressive. That's not a film for the ages. (laughs) What? However, it is notable that this was the first time a black woman was at the helm of such a huge
1: franchise film. And I think this is an incredibly important point to bring up because... Not that we need the proof, but here's proof that a woman and a woman of color at that can helm... A project that draws a bajillion eyeballs, that people will want to go see a film that has this great appeal, regardless of who's in the director's chair. If it's good, it's good, and people are going to want to see it. And it it shouldn't matter that the director is a woman of color. Well, and
0: at this point, too, we've gone down the checklist of all of these firsts of uh, women of color proving again and again, like, yes, I can successfully direct a fantastic film what more do we need and the the answer is more women of color directing films yeah and we're going to talk more about that when we come right back from a quick break and now back to the show so in the first half of the podcast we focused a lot on the women trailblazers the first four African-American female directors. And there a lot of incredible work has been done. An incredible foundation has been laid. But when we look at Hollywood, because keep in mind the differences between going the independent route and Hollywood, where the big bucks are, where you don't have to, as some filmmakers have done, sell your own possessions just so that you can make a film because you're that passionate about it. There is still such a dearth of black women directors.
1: Yeah, writing about this over at the Griot, Lamonia Brown says that since Julie Dash's 1991 breakthrough of Daughters of the Dust there have been only 10 Hollywood films directed by black women released nationally and with a decent enough marketing campaign to actually assist with its promotion.
0: Yeah, and Brown goes on to talk about um, attending a panel that was helmed by black women directors Nima Barnett, Leslie Harris, Bridget Davis, and Tanya Hamilton. And in answering that question of, well, why aren't there more women directors, why aren't black women's movies being made? They attributed the problem more to content than funding. That it starts even even, be, even before the financing issue with just the story itself and the characters and the communities that the stories are examining.
1: Right, so producers and studios just being afraid that the voice in the film or the tone of the film or the content will not attract enough eyeballs. Yeah. If we think that uh, like a
0: female ensemble led film is considered niche, just (laughs) consider take it down a few more notches for that uh, A film starring maybe a black female ensemble. They're like, oh, no, no, not enough people will be interested in that.
1: (laughs) Certainly. Certainly there aren't enough people in the world who would be interested in what black women have to say. And that was
0: something that acclaimed director Dee Reese experienced with her film Pariah, which is about um, a lesbian sort of coming out process that came out in 2011, which was hailed by people, including Meryl Streep, being like, this woman is incredibly talented, she needs to make more films. But when it comes to Pariah, for instance, it was considered, quote, too black and too gay for Hollywood financing. But... <laughs> Which gets to that content issue of like, ooh, I don't know, two things? We could probably have maybe pretty gay, maybe pretty
1: black, but both of those, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's way too niche because we don't have any people like that in the world. Make another Transformers instead. (laughs) But I think it is important to get back to Julie Dash and her perspective on the whole thing, considering she is such a big advocate and agitator for women of color to get behind the camera. She had a great quote in Indie Week talking about how, hey... There are not enough of us. Let's say that. There are not enough of us working. We exist. We're here. They're here. There are just not enough of us working. We need work and would love to have the same opportunities everyone else has, especially when it comes to telling all kinds of stories, not just stories about African-Americans, but all kinds of stories. And that's important, too,
0: to keep in mind. I, I do think that these women get pigeonholed by their ethnicity of people thinking, oh, well, you're a black woman, so you're really only going to want to tell stories about other black women, right? Mm -hmm. When you think about it, I mean, you have uh, you have white men telling the stories of women of all colors all the time. You know, clearly their gender and race is not inhibiting them in the the storytelling process. Um, So it's great that she points that out. Um, Ama Asante, who side note, won a BAFTA for her debut film, A Way of Life. Uh, She was quoted in The Roots saying we, i.e. black female directors, Basically, do not register on the scale when it comes to black women. We are under 1% of directors overall. It's tough being a woman of color director because I am neither the color or the shape that some people are comfortable with seeing in their directors. And that makes it hard.
1: Yeah, and I thought she had a really good point beyond the women of color issue just about femininity and womanhood in general she says the fact that I use my femininity as a tool and not a hindrance is not always comfortable to people to be honest with you but I believe it's about creating a track record that is undeniable and so in other words like who cares you know what I look like the fact that I am so incredibly capable and I have this particular set of skills means that I can helm and helm a great film but also tell a great story And it's absolutely worth noting that this is part of the broader problem
0: for women directors, even if they have had a theatrical release, even if they've had their one Hollywood film, it's far less common for female directors to get their second or third chance for a theatrical release, period, regardless of the color of their skin.
1: Yeah, you kind of have to be a Catherine Bigelow. Basically, you're going to be an exception to a rule if you are a Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, I mean, and also think about, too,
0: and we've talked about her on the podcast before, um, and... She is absolutely important, but it's also interesting too to think about the content of her films where it is more kind of
1: war zone tougher Mm -hmm. shoot 'em up kinds of stories. Yeah, something that can appeal to a white male audience, Mm -hmm. essentially. But now
0: we gotta talk about the game changer. And I have a feeling the podcast listeners have been waiting for us to mention her name since they probably saw the title of this podcast because yes, she inspired This whole thing, and she has gotten a lot of conversation started of late about black female directors. And that is the one and only
1: Ava DuVernay. And she became the first black female director nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Director for her film, Selma. She was beat by, of course, Richard Linklater for Boyhood. But Spike Lee for his film Do the Right Thing and Steve McQueen for 12 Years a Slave were the only other black directors ever nominated for a Golden Globe. Yeah. And also (laughs) not bad for
0: someone who is on their third film and also after making a mid career switch from being in uh, being a film publicist to being like, Hey, you know what? I want to actually make these films. <laughs> and she clearly has a knack for it. I mean, Selma is not the first time Duvernay's made headlines. Her second feature, Middle of Nowhere, also attracted rave reviews, also attracted successful sales, and won her the Best Director award at Sundance, which was huge.
1: That was also a first. She was the first black female director to ever snag that award. Yeah, and her first feature film, I Will Follow, came out in 2011. So this is all pretty rapid fire. I mean, she's she seems to be a prolific filmmaker at this point so far. Um, her actual directorial debut, however, was a 2008 documentary This Is the Life. And I think, I think that's interesting. I think that goes back to what we established at the top of the podcast as far as uh, people who have different perspectives, not just women of color directors, but women directors or really any person of color, they almost have to enter certain industries, certain fields through an alternative route in order to get funding or to get the eyeballs on their projects. And so she, like many other women directors of color, started out in the documentary field. And quickly going
0: back, though, to Sundance and the importance of that platform, particularly for uh, filmmakers of color and women filmmakers, that. So when Julie Dash was bringing Daughters of the Dust to Sundance back in the day, that was when Richard Linklater was bringing Slackers as well. So, I mean, this is clearly, you know, she was up against some, some tough competition. But then Linklater comes, swoops back in again, beating out DuVernay years down the road for Best Director at the Golden Globes for Boyhood, which is a film... I,
1: I really enjoyed a lot as well Um, but we're not here to talk about Richard Linklater <laughs> and obviously we need to talk about the Oscar snub that everybody's been talking about with Duvernay and her film Selma She does talk about how this not being nominated for Best Director was something that she expected. She was talking about this with Entertainment Weekly, and, you know, she said it it would be lovely. And when it happens to whomever it happens to, it will certainly have meaning. But she knew it wouldn't be her. She says, it's not me being humble, it's math. And so when you look at that math, we have to look at how the uh, nominating branch, the director's nominating branch of the Academy is uh, 91% male and 90% white. Yeah. I mean, directors nominate directors, actors nominate
0: actors. And (laughs) I mean, and and that's so the cards are kind of stacked against. her. I mean, she she said outright, she was like, I don't have any. Allies within that group. That group is outside of my network. And she also though did not play politics publicly bristling at negative critiques of President Johnson's portrayal in Selma where he is highly resistant to signing the Voting Rights Act and there was a lot of, you know, grumbling about that. And she came out on Twitter and was like, I, you know, basically saying this is ridiculous um you know historical revisions just period happen in in any of these kinds of films but she was getting particularly Ambassador for, it, and she she had nothing to do with it. And there were some members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts mm-hmm. and Science who were like, you know what? I didn't like that. I really didn't like that. She should have she should have played the politics better.
1: Well, you know the Speaking of the Academy, they do have their first black female president. Yeah, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, and that though did not stop one anonymous Academy member from making a comment to Entertainment Weekly about. Quote, it's almost like because she is African-American, we should have made her one of our nominees. I think that's racist. Look at what we did with 12 Years. And that makes me like roll my eyes so hard that they fall out of my head because there seems to be a really common perception that just because 12 Years a Slave was recognized for the filmmaking and the acting and the directing that that should somehow be enough. Right. Right. And then last year was the the year for a black director. Yeah, basically. Basically. But also that leads us back to that whole discussion of, but is that the only story that we allow black directors and writers to tell and black actors to portray? Only stories about slavery? What about just modern stories about humanity, you know, and, you know, going back to Julie Dash's film Daughters of the Dust. There are other stories to tell that aren't just about slavery. And it does seem, though, like
0: DuVernay is taking it completely in stride. First of all, she wasn't expected. If she were even nominated, she knew she was never going to win. And she's taking cues at this point from Catherine Bigelow and figuring out how to be the very first black female director of Her caliber, she told Entertainment Weekly, quote, I'm trying to be clear and follow my own footsteps because there is no black woman's footsteps to follow. So, I mean, she she could absolutely be the game changer. I mean, she's not going to stop making films anytime soon. And she is I mean, she's the one she could be Really, She could be the one. But the problem is, why is there just the one
1: Yeah, well, it's it's like we talk about so much on the podcast around so many different issues. And it's that issue of visibility, normalizing an idea, whether that's an idea about women in general, women in color. In this case, it's women in front of and behind the camera. The more we say, look. Uh, a black woman can tell a story that appeals to to wide audiences and, and or not or tell a story that's very specific to a certain subset or community of people. That's fine, too. But, you know, the fact that there are so many hurdles to overcome is discouraging. But I think someone like DuVernay is a great figure to have in the news right now, because it seems like she's sort of. Uh, kicking butt and taking names. And I tell you what, like, I mean, and she's
0: not the only one in Hollywood doing that. Just judging off of the Twitter reaction to a simple question of like, hey, who, who should we shout out for this podcast episode? And the enormous response from that, it's clear that these women are, I mean, they're almost, they're not blind to the barriers, but they're working In spite of them, and they're not backing down anytime soon, and they're active, and they're vocal, and they are banging down the doors, and... We're hopefully doing our part to spread the visibility and awareness around that, yeah, they're out there. They're making films, and they're important films to watch and important directors to watch out for.
1: Yeah, so please, please, listeners, write in and tell us your favorite directors, women, women of color, anyone who has created films that have meant a lot to you. And we'd also like to hear recommendations along these same lines for films that we should be watching. Some of these movies that were... Listed in our research, I had never heard of but can't wait to watch. So email us, momstuff at com is our email address. You can
0: also tweet us at momstuffpodcast. And if you're on Twitter and want to stay in the loop on what women of color are up to behind the camera, I highly recommend that you follow the hashtag kickstartdiversity. And don't forget, you can always message us on Facebook as well. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now.
1: I have a letter here from Sharn that is not necessarily about a particular episode that Kristen and I uh, published more about a uh, an unfortunate verbal vomiting issue that we have and I I wrote her back and I thanked her for pointing this out but okay let's get to it she says I really enjoy listening to your podcast before I started listening I would have never thought myself a feminist but listening has made me realize how it is a positive thing to be however I do have a small point to make When discussing issues affecting women outside of the USA, you often interchange UK and British with England and English. As I'm sure you know, the UK is made up of England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. When you discuss issues that affect British women but use the word English, you are ignoring several million women. With devolution of certain powers to local governments in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, it is possible when you discuss certain issues, it may be something which may affect English women only, but the majority will be issues affecting British women. Keep the podcast coming. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much to our Welsh fan, Sharn, for pointing this out. Yes, in the process of citing all of the studies that we do cite in every episode, we trip up sometimes. Yeah. So thanks for thanks for really kindly pointing this out. We love kind
0: corrections. They're the best kind of corrections. Uh, I've got a letter here from Mary Rose about our gay best friend episode, which we have been hearing so much about. And these letters are fantastic. Keep them coming. She writes, after listening to your podcast on the gay best friend, I wanted to put my two cents in regarding lesbians and friends. In my experience, both myself and most lesbians that I know have straight women as our BFFs. I do have some lesbian friends, but as I imagine happens with straight people, there can be tension there sometimes, which can lead to drama, which is not fun. I know many lesbians do remain friends with their exes, but that's probably a whole other podcast. I also have gay male friends that I enjoy immensely and a few straight male friends, but my closest friends are straight women. I do think that most lesbians tend to be closer to women overall, regardless if they're gay or straight or somewhere in between. So thanks, Mary Rose, and everybody else who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, as well as our list of women of color behind the camera that you should pay attention to, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com.